Well, good morning once again, brothers and sisters, and I would ask you to open up in your Bibles to Galatians chapter 2, and as you were doing, to stand, if you are able, once again, for the reading of Scripture this morning. Galatians chapter 2, and we are going to give ourselves to verses 1 through 10 this morning. Galatians chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. Beginning in verse 1, may God give us ears to hear the word of the Lord. Then after 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along with me. I went up because of a revelation and set before them, though privately before those who seemed influential, the gospel that I proclaim among the Gentiles, in order to make sure I was not running or had not run in vain. But even Titus, who was with me, was not forced to be circumcised, though he was a Greek. Yet, because of false brothers secretly brought in, who slipped in to spy out our freedom that we have in Christ Jesus, so that they might bring us into slavery, to them we did not yield in submission even for a moment, so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. And from those who seemed to be influential, uh, what they were makes no difference to me. God shows no partiality. Those, I say, who seemed influential added nothing to me. On the contrary, when they saw that I had been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been entrusted with the gospel to the circumcised, for he who worked through Peter for his apostolic ministry to the circumcised also worked through me for mine to the Gentiles. And when James and Cephas and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that was given to me, they gave the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and me, that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. Only they asked for us to remember the poor, the very thing I was eager to do. And thus ends this reading of God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word. Brothers, please take your seats. It's been said, I think rightly so, freedom is worth fighting for, even dying for. Notable theologian Bob Marley has said it this way, (laughs) better to die for freedom than to be a prisoner all the days of your life. And, And I think whatever you think of Bob Marley, we can at least agree with that sentiment. And if that is true, brothers and sisters, when it comes to our family or our country, how much more true is it when it comes to eternity? Let me just state it plainly and outright. Freedom in Christ is worth fighting for. And Paul would certainly have agreed. After all, the first two chapters of Galatians is nothing less than the Apostle Paul fighting for the absolute purity of the gospel, of Christ crucified for sinners, and that on account of Christ and Christ alone, sinners like you and I are reconciled to God. And that you and I, we lay hold of Christ and all His benefits simply by faith and by faith alone, in contrast to any works that you and I might tend to rest in. 
And redeeming grace, I would just have you to know, it is important to see this is the trajectory, or you could fall into the trap of thinking that what is in front of us this morning is merely autobiographical. You see, brothers and sisters, what we read here and what we saw last week at the end of Galatians 1, this is not just Paul sort of voluntary sharing with us his travel log or something like that. Instead, every step that Paul is taking here, it reflects the nature of the gospel. Let me explain. Just like at the end of chapter 1, here at the beginning of chapter 2, Paul describes a powwow that he had with some bigwigs up in Jerusalem. And remember, the the false teachers, or as they are called there in verse 4, false brothers... In all of this, they had been seeking to to discredit Paul. They were challenging his apostleship and with it, his so-called gospel of grace. Well, we're told in verse 1 that Paul goes up to Jerusalem and he takes with him Barnabas and Titus, which is going to become critically important in just a moment. But for now, I want you to notice that Paul was not, I repeat, was not summoned by the Jerusalem church leaders to come to them. It wasn't as if they put out a warrant for his arrest or something like that. Verse 2 records that I, that is Paul, went up because of a revelation. So catch this, just like Paul's gospel of grace came directly from Christ... So, Paul being called to Jerusalem came directly from Christ. The point? The leaders in Jerusalem were not exercising authority over Paul. This is significant. If you remember from last week, uh, they had argued, at least some in Jerusalem, that Paul received the gospel from them, from the Jerusalem church, from the mother church. But then, Paul sort of zigged when he was supposed to zag. He, he deviated from the truth of the gospel. And in doing so, he corrupted the gospel and made it something else entirely. If that wasn't bad enough, they would say, Paul is not even a true apostle. You've heard of Peter and and James and John. Sure, we we know those guys. We know those guys are are true, bona fide apostles. They're up here with us at Jerusalem. But Paul, at best, Paul is some second-rate apostle with a hand-me-down gospel. At worst, he is both a deceiver and distorter of the gospel. But of course, none of those accusations are true. And more specific to our passage this morning, Paul went up to Jerusalem, we are told, on his own because of Christ. So Christ saved him, Christ commissioned him, Christ gave him the gospel, and now Christ has summoned him to Jerusalem. But you'll notice, Paul did not go alone. He made this trek with at least two individuals. One is Barnabas and the other, Titus. And Titus, throughout our section of Scripture here this morning, Titus becomes something of a test case. 
And, and we know this because the text goes out of its way to let us know that Titus was a Gentile. Verse 3 reveals he was a Greek. In other words, he wasn't Jewish. Which means, and this is key, because he was not Jewish, he was not circumcised. Now today, of course, many in our country, at least men anyway, are circumcised. But we should also recognize that it almost has nothing at all to do with anything ethnically or religiously significant. Circumcision in our culture is all about perceived health benefits. But that is not, I repeat, not the case in Galatians. It's hard for us to wrap our heads around this, but for the Jew, circumcision was absolutely definitional. It went back thousands and thousands of years all the way back to God's covenant promises that He had made with Abraham. And to be part of that covenant, it was non-negotiable. You had to be circumcised. In fact, it was so serious that if you were a blood relative of Abraham, if you were not circumcised, then even though you were a blood relative of Abraham, you would be cut off from the people of God. Perhaps you can catch up on something of the intended meaning of circumcision and being cut off from the people of God. So just as in the New Covenant, baptism is what marks out the people of God, so it was in the Old Covenant with circumcision. So today, if you want to know who the Christians are, well, the Christians are those who are wet with the waters of baptism. Likewise, back then, if you wanted to know who belonged to the covenant, who belonged to the people of God, it was those who were circumcised. And so the point not to be missed is this. This is no small matter. For generation upon generation upon generation, circumcision is what defined who was in the covenant. For you and I today, it would be like our social security number. It would be like our birth certificate. It was essential for defining who we are. And it had been that way for thousands of years. And that's sort of the background. And so what all of this does is it raises a massively significant question, one that comes to touch upon the very heart of the gospel. Are you ready? After Christ, and by that I mean after his life, death, burial, and resurrection, after the new covenant had been established, after the Spirit of God had been poured out upon the people of God, here is the question. How does one become a child of Abraham? What marks out, what defines Abraham's true seed? And the rub is this. Here's what makes things so sticky. According to the gospel, it is faith. Faith. 
Faith alone, in Christ alone, by grace alone, is what makes you a son or daughter of Abraham and therefore part of the covenant. You have to understand the rub. The Judaizers in Galatia, and they also resided in Jerusalem, we are told, they said, no, it is faith plus circumcision. In other words, to be a Christian, to have your sins forgiven, to stand right in God's side, to go to heaven, to really please God, according to the Judaizers, you not only have to entrust yourself to Jesus Christ, you must also, in effect, become Jewish. You have to do something. And I trust that you see this is the crux of the issue. Is our right standing before God, both today and on Judgment Day, is it based solely on the person and work of Jesus Christ, who He is and what He has done for sinners like you and I? Or, that's one option, or... Does our right standing before God come down to me in some way? To simplify, is Christ enough? Is Christ sufficient? Or do you or I, do we need to add on to what Christ has done? The Judaizers, they would be happy. Yes, Christ has done His work and praise God. But you still need to add on. You still need to supplement. You still need to build upon it. It is not enough that Christ has died for sinners. It is not enough that you are trusting in Him. You, you must now go and do this. And I pray that you would see, brothers and sisters, that this is the difference between heaven and hell. This is the difference between a true gospel of grace and a pseudo-gospel of works. Do you have eyes to see, brothers and sisters, how the true gospel brings in its wake joy and assurance and hope? while the false gospel of the Judaizers is bound to breed either pride or despair. You see, that is where joy and assurance and hope is found. It is found in the fact that Christ has done it all. The second that you have to do something, the second that you have to have this much faith or this many good works or this many feelings or conquer this many sins, then it all becomes subjective. Then it all comes down to how you feel. It all comes down to you. This is why, at the bottom, the reason that Christians do not have joy and assurance and hope in their Christian life is because they are not fully and finally looking to Jesus. They're looking to themselves. This is why, brother or sister, you struggle with assurance. Because you have your eyes fixed on you. You haven't yet conquered that one sin. You haven't quite finally ridded this one sin from your heart. You, you haven't conquered this. You haven't done that. You, 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 you. You are a wretch. You should know that by now. 
you realize that you are a wretch because Jesus had to die to forgive you of your sins. This is why the Judaizers' false gospel would only breed pride or despair. Because now, you've only got two options. Well, if it comes down to me, either I did it, I can do it, my head gets fat, I can't fit my shirt over it anymore, I'm the cat's meow. And we know Christians like this. They're just as awful. A proud Christian is an oxymoron. Or, and this is probably sadder, you have Christians that are in utter despair. Because they know they can't do it. They know they are wretches. They know they don't have enough faith. They know they break God's law. They know they don't love Jesus the way they should be. And so they're miserable all the time. That's not the gospel, brothers and sisters. The gospel is Christ. The gospel is Christ crucified for you. The gospel is Christ is enough. The gospel is Christ is sufficient. And if you would just get your eyes off of yourself and onto Christ, joy and assurance and hope would fill your sail. In a lot of ways, this is why Titus is a test case. I mean, consider this. Consider, <laughs> consider the attitude of the Apostle Paul to bring an uncircumcised Gentile right into the lion's den, to bring Titus into Jerusalem and to lay out the gospel that he proclaimed. What's the result? Verse 3 is awesome. But even Titus, who was with me, was not forced to be circumcised. Not even by these highly influential Jewish church leaders in Jerusalem. Titus walked in as a Gentile. He walked out as a Gentile. Here's why this is good news. That's why it's good news for the Galatian churches and why it's good news for you and I and also why it is the death nail to the false teachers. You ready? If Titus stands right in God's sight solely on account of Christ and Christ alone, received by faith and by faith alone, then you have to understand, brothers and sisters, that that is true not just of Titus, but it is true of all of us. You don't need to become Jewish to be right in God's sight. You don't need to adhere to the ceremonial code of the Old Covenant. You need only cling to Christ by grace alone, through faith alone. That's the same thing that Titus did. And just as Christ was enough for Titus, just as Christ is more than sufficient for Titus, so Christ is enough and Christ is sufficient for you and I. You might think of it this way. Titus is right standing before God as an uncircumcised Gentile. By doing so, Titus is a living and moving and breathing testimony to the utter grace of God revealed in the gospel. Titus teaches us that it's not about me or you. It's not about what we've done or what we haven't done. It's not about how many steps we've taken, how far along the road we are, how much we haven't figured out. It's about Christ. It's about what Christ has done for you. You don't need to clip this. You don't need to check that box. You don't need to go take care of this over here. You don't need to do that. 
the gospel, brothers and sisters, is not contingent upon you. It's not contingent upon your works or your deeds or your activities or your religious ceremonies. The gospel is about Christ doing for us what we could never do for ourselves. Do you really think that by clipping some piece of skin on your body that you will merit righteousness before God? Do you really think if you come to church on time four Sundays in a row that that will somehow undo all of God's law that you broke? We think this way. I mean, when we say it out loud, we know it is insane. But we feel that way. If we would just not watch this TV show, if we would just read our Bible this long, if we would just wake up this early and pray, if we would just hand out this many tracts, then somehow all of our guilt and shame would go away. You, my friend, cannot ever merit the righteousness that you need to stand before God. Not enough. There's not enough good that you can do. Why? Because the Bible tells us that one sin, one single sin, is all it takes to land you in the pit. The wages of sin is death. And the soul who sins shall die. One sin is all it takes. And even if somehow, theoretically, you were able to not sin just once, you were born in sin. You inherited sin and guilt from our first father, Adam. You are doomed from your first breath. And yet we think that we can somehow do this or do that. Nonsense. The only hope that we have is a righteousness that is not our own. The only hope that we have to stand before God is that someone would take all of our sin, past, present, and future away, and somehow that we would have all the righteousness that we need to stand before God. Almost as if somebody who lived an utterly perfect life would take all of our sin and he would give us all of his perfection. And of course, that's exactly what Christ does for us. Christ loved God with all of his heart, soul, mind, and strength. Christ only ever loved his neighbor. He was absolutely perfect. Not just sinless, Christ was utter perfection incarnate. And in the gospel, all of Christ's perfection is credited to your account. Then, irony of ironies, the perfect Christ dies an utterly sinner's death. One in which the very curse of God is unleashed upon him. The Bible goes out of its way to let us know that upon that, Christ, upon that cross, Christ paid the penalty for sin. Remember, Christ was perfect. He didn't owe anything. He pays it on behalf of his people. Three days later, we are told that Christ gets up from the dead. In doing so, he's not just showing off. It's not some sort of parlor trick. The resurrection of Christ is evidence that sin has been conquered. The grave has been conquered. Hell has been conquered. Satan has been conquered. Which means that for the Christian, the one who is actually resting in Christ and in not themselves, your debt is paid. 
All your stains are cleansed. All your guilt is removed. The very wrath of God awakened by your sin. And you'd better believe that by your sin you have provoked the wrath of God. But that very wrath of God provoked by your sin is placated by Christ. And here's the good news. And we get we get up the ante. Here's the best part of all of that news. You and I lay hold of all of those gospel gifts. Our sins being forgiven, Christ's righteousness being made ours, being accepted in God's sight. We get all of this not after we jump through some hoops. Not after we work it off on the treadmill. Not after we do all of our chore charts. We simply receive all of these gospel benefits by believing the message of the gospel. But, so often, something terrible happens. And the terrible thing is the very simplicity and glory of the gospel is neutered. And I'm be very clear, I'm not talking about like those people out there, like the heathens or something like that. I'm talking about right here in our very own hearts. The world and the flesh and the devil all rage against us, do they not? The world lures us and our consciences condemn us and the devil accuses us. And it doesn't take long. In fact, often it happens uh, quickly. We no longer have eyes of faith to see that Christ is enough. Quickly and often without warning, uh, we we kind of default into our fallen nature. We we default into our Adam mode in the garden when when all of a sudden he's he's ashamed of his sin and so he grabs some fig leaves and tries to to cover himself. He's ashamed and he thinks that he can make it all better himself. We do the same thing. We try to smuggle our good works in again as if our good works can tip the scales in our direction. For some Christians, your, your feelings become the basis for your standing before God, which means if you had a good day, you think God is happy with you. If you had a bad day, well, God's not that happy with you. Our supposed righteousness or unrighteousness, it becomes the determining factor. And when that happens, we trade freedom for slavery. And we have to be clear at this point, that is what we have in Christ. We have freedom. That is what the gospel offers sinners. It offers us freedom, while false gospels offer slavery. False gospels, false gospels will hand out to you, and we are so willing to take them, it chains. Guilt. Hardship. Discouragement. And this is true today just as much as it was true in Paul's day. If you doubt me, just put your eyes on verse 4. We're told, yet because the false brother secretly brought in, who slipped in to spy out our freedom that we have in Christ Jesus, so that they might what? Bring us into slavery. To them, that is the false brothers, we did not yield in submission even for a moment. Verse 5 so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. Just notice in passing, church, the force, the narrow-mindedness 
with which the Apostle Paul speaks and acts here. These are not misled brothers. These are not ignorant Christians. They are not immature believers. They are, verse 4, false brothers. They are not Christians. They are opponents. And they were, verse 4, secretly brought in. Like SEAL Team 6. They're stealthy. They slipped in, verse 4, to do what? To spy out our freedom that we have in Christ. Let's be very clear. These guys know exactly what they're doing. They are not innocent. These false brothers are evil. Just as Satan slithered into the garden to challenge and distort God's Word, so these false brothers. Today, they'd be so-called pastors, authors, seminary profs, and podcasters. They have slithered in to the garden of God's church to challenge and distort God's gospel. And their message seemed simple enough. It seemed even faithful enough. They say, you need grace. You need Christ. You need to trust Christ. But they would add, that is not enough. That is not all. For according to these serpents, you also need to perform, to maintain, to keep it up, to do your part, which means, to come full circle, their message was actually a burden. They didn't announce freedom, but instead they offered chains. That's what a false gospel does. I hope you understand. That's what a false gospel does, is it shackles you. It robs you of your joy in the gospel. It absolutely obliterates your assurance. And it abolishes your fellowship with God. Which is why, at least on Paul's watch, Titus was not circumcised. And as far as Paul was concerned, never would be. Verse 5 again, is one of those sort of feisty moments. To them, that is these false brothers, we did not yield in submission even for a moment. No budging, no compromise. This requirement for Titus to be circumcised in order to be right with God, it would not be entertained even for a split second. Why? Because such an act would be the iceberg to the Titanic of the gospel. To suggest even for a moment that we are made right in God's sight by any other way other than faith in Jesus Christ is to gut the gospel. Think of it with me. If circumcision, and, and when you hear circumcision, you have to think works, deeds, acts. You, you, you need to think, well, Something I need to do. If the gospel hinges on anything you have to do, well, then it is no longer the gospel. At that moment, the very foundation of Christ's life, death, burial, and resurrection has quickly eroded. If I have to go out and check this box or perform this rite or do this task or complete this over here, then Christ is no longer enough. 
then Christ is no longer sufficient. All of a sudden, it is not enough that Christ would live and die and rise for sinners. Now, apparently, you and I have to contribute as well. I was doing sidewalk evangelism a couple of weeks back. And there was a young woman who who heard us preaching and quickly became agitated. And it was actually somebody that was, that was with me said to her as clearly and as calmly as it could be said. Said to her, ma'am, you must repent of your sin and believe in the gospel or you are going to go to hell. And this woman, as if she had a demon, immediately became furious. And she lunged at us and she began screaming, we can all go to heaven All we have to do is our best. Think about that for a moment. Think how horrifying that would be if it were true. Have any of you, be serious now, have you ever done your best for like an hour? No one has ever done their best. And while that might be the prevailing mantra of religion here in the States, that is not good news. That is a false gospel. And again, it's built into our DNA. We're all born Pelagians. We all think that at the end of the day, it comes down to me pulling myself up by my own bootstraps and just getting my act together and doing it right. That's born in our DNA because we are fallen in sin. That's what we all think. That's what we fall back on. That is what our default is. What what, What God's Word says is that that is a false gospel. That is slavery. That is chains. It is heavy, thick chains with no key. The gospel is not do your best. The gospel is Christ did His best for you. The gospel is not look in the mirror. The gospel is look to the cross. The gospel is not you can do it. The gospel is Christ did it for you. And this is why, incidentally enough, Galatians has been known as the Magna Carta of Christian liberty. Because in Christ we are free. We are free from the condemnation of the law. Free from the accusations of the devil. Free from our own guilty consciences. We are free from the weight of sin, the shame of guilt, the terror of God's wrath, and the fires of hell. And we are free, brothers and sisters, because Christ has bled and died for us. To which the opponents in Galatia would quickly respond, pump the brakes, not so fast. Luke records for us in Acts chapter 15.1, probably a similar episode. Just to give you an idea of what they were saying. Some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, here it is, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. Do you hear the bondage? 
do you hear the gospel? The gospel, the mixing of the law and the gospel. Church, the moment you mix law and gospel, you utterly destroy both of them. And that is because the law and the gospel do different things. They preach different messages. The law is due. The gospel is done. The law calls you to work. The gospel calls you to faith. The law threatens perform. The gospel promises grace. The law revolves around you, while the gospel revolves around Christ. Which means, in in a lot of ways, all the Judaizers were doing was peddling some ancient version of what we would call today legalism. Now, I realize that that sort of word is is loaded and it comes with all sorts of baggage, so let me try and define it as simply and clearly as I can. Legalism is the idea of you and I working in our own power according to our own rules, seeking to earn God's favor. Or maybe to even simplify it a bit more, legalism is when you and I think we can achieve heaven by keeping a list of rules. And before you shake your head, we need to be honest. None of us, and I repeat, none of us are immune to legalism. It's like mold. It can quickly grow in the darkness and in the depths of our hearts. And I will grant to you, sure, maybe we don't think our circumcision plays a factor in our relationship with God. And and I would imagine we could all give a hearty amen. But... For example, what about our quiet times, as they are called in Christianese? Lots of Christians, scores of them think that if they read the Bible and pray for an hour a day, every day, that somehow that will impress God. Or worse than that, to fail to do so will call into question your salvation. Church, you have to realize that that is simply legalism repackaged. And we fall into this stuff all the time. We beat ourselves up asking ourselves, do I have enough faith? You know what the answer to that question is? No, you never have. You never have. Thankfully, God does not save us based on the quantity of our faith. God saves us on account of Christ. And some of us have strong faith, and some of us have weak faith. But you know what, 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 what the common denominator is between strong faith and weak faith? It's faith. It's faith. You have never had enough faith. Or perhaps you're one of those who resorts to morbid introspection. You try to rid each and every trace of sin from your life before you come to the communion table. If that's the prerequisite, you ain't ever coming. You ain't ever coming. And you've misunderstood the whole point. God offers us, Christ offers us His body and bread and His blood in the wine because you can't do it. 
This is why Christ died. If you had it in you to rid every trace of sin from your entire being, then you wouldn't need Christ in the first place, and you wouldn't need to come to his table. We wonder, have I, have I conquered that one sin enough? Have I attained enough notches in my spiritual belt? We tell ourselves this lie. It goes like this. If I could just do this or just not do that, then I know that God would really be pleased with me and I, and I would go to heaven and I, and I would have assurance and joy. But Christian, please hear this. Right now, in this very moment, God is pleased with you. It's just got nothing to do with you. You see, God is pleased with you on account of Christ. The good news of the gospel is that Christ has spilled his blood to wash away your sin. But that's not all. The good news just gets better. Christ's perfect and spotless righteousness is now yours by grace alone through faith alone. That is why God is pleased with you. Not because he looks down from heaven and says, oh, this young lady actually read two chapters of the Bible today. God looks down from heaven and sees you robed in the perfect righteousness of his son. That is our only hope. And you and I can be assured of heaven, brother and sister, because that is where Christ is now. And he is interceding for us. The the point not to be missed is that in all of this, from beginning to end, do you know what you do? You receive. You are simply the beneficiary, never the benefactor. And that is what makes the gospel a gospel of grace. That is what makes the gospel good news. It's all about Christ. It's all about grace. It's all about God bestowing upon unworthy sinners gifts. Gifts of life. Gifts of forgiveness. Gifts of hope. Gifts of heaven. And it's that gospel that Paul preached. Paul preached that gospel because Christ, uh, Paul knew firsthand that he didn't deserve anything other than grace. And I should point out that it is that same gospel of grace that was preached by the faithful in Jerusalem. That's Paul's point there beginning in verse 6. And from those who seem to be influential, uh, what they were makes no difference to me. God show, shows no partiality. Those, I say, who seemed influential, and probably referring to the apostles in Jerusalem, we're told they added nothing to me. In other words, what Paul is telling us here is that, is that after this powwow, after this interview, after this conference, they all came to the recognition, the conclusion, Paul's gospel was not deficient. It was not distorted. In fact, not only was it not deficient and not distorted, it's the same exact gospel that they themselves were proclaiming. This is fleshed out on what follows, beginning in verse 7. On the contrary, 
When they saw that I had been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been entrusted with the gospel to the circumcised, skip ahead, they gave the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and me. You see what's happening here in Galatians 2? Same gospel. Same Christ. Same team. Everybody agrees. Christ and Christ alone. Everybody agrees Christ is enough. Christ is sufficient for sinners. And that is true whether you are Jew or Gentile, white or black, man or woman, young or old, me or you. That was the consensus as Paul left Jerusalem with Titus uncircumcised. Christ is our standing before God. Christ is our righteousness. Christ is our holiness. Christ is our life. Christ is our freedom. Christ is our justification and our assurance. Christ is everything. And that is true in Jerusalem to the circumcised, and it is true to the Gentiles as well. Christ is enough. So given all of this, My exhortation to you, Redeeming Grace, this morning, and really it is my plea, is this. Do not trust in yourself, not even for a minute. You are prone towards legalism. We all have a pharisaical tendency within us. So my plea this morning is that you do not base your standing before God upon you at all. Not your fickle feelings, not your half-hearted performance, not your so-called religious discipline. Instead, our only boast as Christians is that we boast in the cross of Christ. Christ is our life. In Christ we have hope. In Christ we find forgiveness. And in Christ we have freedom from the chains of sin. So, based upon that gospel reality, let me ask you. You've been unshackled by the gospel. Christ is the key that unlocks your chains. Here's the question. Why on earth would you ever return to those chains? Why on earth would a prisoner who's been emancipated voluntarily walk back into prison, go back into his old cell, and try to grab those chains and put them on his wrists. Brothers and sisters, you've been set free. Christ is enough. So look to Him. And we'll do that now as we prepare to come to the table together. Let's pray. Father, we pray that You would fit us now for this task. That you would strip away any pretense, any pride, any idea of you and I, uh, 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 of my brothers and sisters here thinking that we have something in us, that we bring anything to the table. We don't. All we have is Christ. And so we pray that you would ready us uh, by grace alone, through faith alone, to receive from Christ at his table this morning. We ask these things for our good and for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.